Well, let me get to the, uh, the picture here. Do you guys know what story this is an illustration from? The Ugly Duckling, absolutely. Hans Christian Andersen wrote a lot of children's stories. This was one of them. The story goes briefly something like this. In a farmyard, there's a duck sitting on her nest, and she's going to hatch all those little eggs. And most of them are coming out just fine, fuzzy, cute, yellow, gold ducklings. But one egg just won't hatch, and it takes a little while, and one of the other uh, ducks comes up and says, hey, I think maybe you've got a turkey egg there. I think one of the turkeys has laid an egg in your nest. And not sure about that. Waits, is patient. The egg finally hatches. And the duckling jumps in the water so she knows it's not a turkey, for sure. But this is an ugly duck, and it doesn't look like the ugly, the other ducklings. And it's not treated very well. Read the story, it's kind of heartbreaking. Not treated very well, abused by its duckling siblings, parent, farmers don't like it, the animals don't like it, it escapes to another farmyard, it's abused there by chickens and cats and another farm family, and its life is not good. And it's just eking out its survival. It barely survives through the winter. And as spring comes, it finds itself in a glade along a lake, and it is so despaired of life, it just wants to die. And it sees some beautiful swans out there in the water, and so it decides, I'm going to swim out to those swans, I'm going to expose my neck so they'll kill me, I'm so ugly, everyone hates me, I'm simply going to get myself out of my misery, they'll take care of this for me, they'll dispatch me and life will be good. And of course, the ugly duckling flies out, lands in among the swans, and lo and behold, they accept it as one of their own. Because, of course, it's not a duckling, it's a swan. And in fact, they say it's the most beautiful of their, of their number because it's still in its youthful uh, vitality. So, of course, the ugly duckling had an identity issue. It didn't know who its parents really were. And because of that, everything else was frustration. And we started a series last week called Behold Your God in which we said our goal was to gain some specific views, knowledge of who God is and what He's like so that we're taking our references from God, not from sub-things, created things, lesser things, taking our cues from God Himself so that we're growing in the direction of godliness, of Christ-likeness. And guys, if we, don't, if we don't know that as Christians, then we end up growing in other directions that aren't redemptive, but they're ruining for us. They're ruining for us. Uh, let me say a few things before we jump into the study specifically. The things we're talking about here, transformation into the image of Christ, is true of us only if we're Christians. The things we're saying here are only true of Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, your sins have been covered by His sacrifice on the cross. That's what you need. Because otherwise, God is not your Father. You're not growing into the image of God, but into the image of our old earthly father, Adam. It's a corrupt image, and we just get worse and worse over time. But if we're a Christian, if Christ is our Savior, if God is our Father, these things are true of us, and hopefully more so over time. Also, let me say this. Uh, I love to teach, I, I love to study the Word, I love to teach uh, the Scriptures. Uh, teaching on what we call theology proper is a challenge. You know, if you go through a text of the Scripture and you say, okay, this is 
who wrote it. This is when they wrote it. This is what they said. This is what it means. These are some of the ways we can apply it. As deep and as heady as that may be on one hand, you sort of say, Lord, we can do this and we trust your spirit to use it. But when you talk about God specifically, about what we call theology proper, who God is, what he's like, friends, all of us are out of our depth. And I confess absolutely, this was a frustrating week for me in preparing, simply trying to say something adequate about God and his glory and what that means for us. It's just, it's a tough, tough challenge. The, the last thing is my hope for what we look at this morning is just that as we consider God as our creator, God in, in the view of creator, that our hearts are simply drawn a little bit more fully to him and away from lesser things. God is creator versus our hearts set on things he created. So knowing God as creator should help us turn away from the smaller idols that would otherwise clutter our lives. Let me read a quote from last week. Uh, the inception of this study, this series, comes from a book called We Become What We Worship from G.K. Beale. And he said this, God has made humans to reflect Him. But if they don't commit themselves to Him, they will not reflect Him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It's not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the Creator or something in creation. Can't be otherwise. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. We become what we're admiring. We become what we're worshiping. We become what we're setting our heart and our affections on. And it's taking us in the direction of restoration into the image of God, or we're simply becoming a more ruined version of ourself. So, with that, before the beginning, we're going to talk about God as Creator, but before we get to God as Creator, before the creation, what was there? So, before Genesis 1-1 happened, before God spoke the universe, time, space, matter, energy, into existence, what was there? Before the beginning began, what, what was around? God was all that was. Before the beginning, God was. God didn't need Genesis 1-1 to exist. Before there was a beginning, there was God. So Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God... When the beginning began, God was already there. God is the one who began the beginning. You know, we're creatures of time. We're locked into space and time. We can't think of life otherwise. That's not true of God. God is eternal. God didn't start when time started. God was before time. When the beginning of all things we know or can think of began, God already was and had always been. Back in the day, before the day, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, were. They simply were. There was nothing else. There was no one else. Before the heavens and the earth were formed, before Satan, before angels became demons, before angels were, before there was space, time, matter, or energy, God already was eternally, time without end. God didn't begin 
with Genesis 1.1. God was and always was. Norm Geisler says it this way in his systematic theology, God is the first cause. You know, in philosophy we talk about first cause. God is the cause from which everything else has come. If you take God out of the picture, first cause, nothing follows. Nothing follows, no one follows. You and I, we are locked as creatures of space and time. We're sequential beings. We're born, we live, we die. That's not true of God. It's never been true of God. It won't be true of God. God inhabits time with us, but He's not constrained by time. Geisler goes on to say, He is the beginning beyond which there is no beginning. So we can trace ourselves back to Genesis 1-1 in our universe, but God, that's not God's lineage. That's just something He did. He put out there. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses was called by God to a burning bush, and God says to Moses, you're my man, you're going to go down to Egypt, you're going to talk to Pharaoh and to Israel, and you're going to lead them out. And Moses is a fearful fellow. And he says, well, Lord, if they ask who sent me, what do I say? Who do I say sent me? And so God uses a Hebrew word that simply means to exist. And that's what the term Yahweh comes from. God says, you tell them, I am has sent you. You tell them that the one who always has been is the one that sent you. The one who has no beginning, no end, who simply is is constantly, is in the present, that's God's eternal state. I'm the one who is, who always is, who always has been, is. God's key Old Testament name, Yahweh, the one who always has been. When Moses went to write a song about God, and Moses wrote Genesis 1.1, and Moses met God and God says, I'm the eternal one. When Moses went to write a song about God, he said this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, before Genesis 1.1, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. From before time to after time, before Genesis 1.1, after Revelation 22, you are God totally independent of the mountains and all space and time and matter. You are God before all things. You've got, I hope, a study sheet. You've got some additional verses on there. I'm going to skip down to 1 Timothy 1.17. Paul described God this way, the King of the ages immortal, the One who rules over the ages, the eons of time or eternity, the God who's not constrained by time, but who rules over it. The one who is and always has been immortal. That's who Paul's talking about. That's our God. You see this same thing attributed to Jesus in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is Yahweh of Genesis 1.1. You see the Father and the Son. And actually in the text of Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. You see the Trinity in view in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Going on and talking about Jesus further, says this in Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw Him, Jesus in His glory, I fell at His feet though dead. He laid His right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
And in Revelation 22.13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I'm the start, I'm the finish, I'm before the start, I'm after the finish, first and last, Alpha and Omega, I am it. So before space and time, God simply is. That's not true of anyone, and it's not true of anything else. Friends, no power can exist independent of or greater than our Creator, God. It's impossible. Because He is that from which everything else has come, nothing can be His equal. Nothing and no one can be His equal. If we're worshiping, and friends, this just means the affections of our heart. This means where we place our trust, who we aspire to be like. If it's on anything less than God Himself, it's idolatrous. Because now we're aiming towards part of God's creation instead of God Himself. If we're worshiping, if we're trusting, we're focusing our affections on. Ultimately, we have affection for each other, I hope. That's not what we're talking about. But ultimately, on anything less than God Himself, it's a form of idolatry. It's on the creature instead of the Creator. Imagine this. If I gave you a birthday present, and maybe it's what you've always wanted, and I've wrapped it up in a box, and I give you the box, and you unwrap the box, and you take out the present, and it's just what you want. It's the right color. It's the right size. You're delighted. You're so thankful. And here I stand, and the box is on the floor between us, and there's you with your gift, and you turn to the box, and you lift the box up, and you say, box, thank you. Box, you knew just what I wanted. It's just right. It's the right size. It's the right color. How did you know, box? Worshipping something that was given and created instead of the one who gave it. But that's what we do when we set our affections in any ultimate sense, our acts of worship, our aspiration to become like someone else on someone or something less than God Himself. So, before the beginning, before there was a beginning, there was God. And then... There was the beginning. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before that, there's nothing. We call this creation ex nihilo, something out of nothing. Isn't that cool? Before Genesis 1, 1, there's just God. And after Genesis 1, 1 and the succeeding days, as he continues his creative acts and then organizes the creation, then there's everything that's ever been. Then there's every possibility of everything that's ever been. But before that, there's absolutely no possibility of anything other than God, the Trinity. There's no space-time, there's no matter, there's no energy. Genesis 1 goes on to relate how God ordered the elements of creation, continued the creative process on successive days. He divides light and dark, water and land, plant life, sun, moon and stars, animal life, and last of all, man. All that He created. But before this, none of this exists and it's not possible that any of it exists. Speaking of Jesus in John 1, Jesus, John tells us, is that creative God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And verse 3 says, All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything that was made. Specific to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. You see the same thing in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Verse 17, He is before all things, 
and in Him all things hold together. When we worship Jesus, we worship God. We don't worship some, some elevated human. We don't worship some creature like us. Jesus is God. When we worship God, we worship Christ. We are work, worshiping the omnipotent Creator God. I love too, just a, a brief uh, digression. It says Jesus holds all things together. You guys know with the super colliders, one of the biggest things science and physics are looking for today is the God particle. And it's the particle that's so small we can't see it, we can't measure it, we're looking for it, and we assume it's there. And this is sort of how this goes. Physicists know that based on the math we know, the universe doesn't make sense. The movements of the bodies in, in the universe don't comply with the laws of physics as we know because there's not enough mass measurable mass in the universe to explain the relative movement of the bodies in space. And so scientists have determined that there is matter in space that we cannot see, we cannot measure, but we know it's there. This is for them. This is a leap in the dark. They call this dark matter. Dark matter. Jesus says here that all things hold together by His will. Now, if scientists find the God particle, the inference is there's a particle that's throughout the universe that we can't see or measure, but collectively it has so much gravity that it's the missing gravity we can't otherwise find that explains the movement of the heavenly bodies around each other. Guys, I don't know if there's a God particle. I wouldn't be surprised if there is or there isn't. But this I know, Jesus not only created the heavens and the earth, it's His power that holds it together and explains the reasons why things move as they do in His physical creation. When we're thinking of God, whether we're thinking of Christ, the Spirit, the Father, God made the glories of the earth. Everything that we can imagine. The oceans, the seas, the lakes, the streams, the mountains and valleys, sunrises and sunsets. By the way, it was this spectacular sunrise this morning. Did you guys see it? Oh, it was clear. And if you were here, the trees across the highway were lit up. It was splendid. All animal life, all sea life, all trees, flowers, all that's good for food. If you go to the smallest, you're, you're talking about RNA, DNA, double helixes, genomes, quarks, whatever we're talking about. God made all that to the sublimely large, the glories of the universe, the sun, moon, and stars of our solar system, swirling galaxies near and far, the dwarf stars, black holes, nebula, and stardust, whatever you're thinking about, God made it all. The boundless universe that we explore with the Hubble and other telescopes, rockets to the moon, space probes that takes years to reach the planets we hope to learn about, all of those came into existence in the briefest span of time because God said so. That's the Creator. That's our Creator. I'm a little disappointed, I confess, when I read Genesis 1.16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. That's the sun and the moon. And then He just says, He made the stars too. So there's very few mornings or evenings I don't go out when it's dark and look at the stars. They are... I, I, I thrill to the stars pretty much every day, every evening and every morning they are just glorious and God says I just threw some stars out there too Mike here's something for you it's like you're you're easily amused aren't you I just threw them out there 
And I think, yeah, I am, and I'm loving it every day and every night. I'm loving it. Yeah, so God created. I'm getting ahead of myself. God's glory in creation. Let me ask you this. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did He create the place that you and I live? Why did He create humanity? Why, why did He create us at all? And this is not a trick question. So God created all that He created for His own glory. So let that sink in for just a second. God did not create this universe or the stars to please Mike. Hard as that is for me to think of sometimes. Or you. God created all that He created for His own glory to put on display the perfections of who and what He is. That's why He created. For His own glory. If I told you I was doing something for my own glory, you'd say I had a problem. Megalomaniac, egomaniac, it's all about Mike. Of course it is. What's the problem? If I did that, Mike's got a problem, right? Absolutely. But guys, when God does this, it's the best thing that can happen. If God puts on display the perfections of who and what He is, this is nothing but good. And that's what God did in the creation. He said He would demonstrate His power, His goodness, and His creativity through His creation. Creation, the world, the universe, humanity is all here to declare the excellencies of God Himself. And that's not a bad thing. That is a very, very good thing. In Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, you got this great scene where they're in heaven and they're worshiping God on the throne. And they say, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things... And by your will, they existed and were created. God, you deserve glory and praise because you created everything and they're here for you. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Guys, when we look up in the night sky and we see those stars, by the way, this morning, even if you were up late, even if you slept in, Venus and Jupiter up in the eastern sky, the last things of light before the sun rose, was absolutely spectacular this morning. All those glories God has put there for us to be aware of Him. The heavens display, declare God's glory. When we see the sky, we're meant to think of God and His glory. Colossians 1.16 says, God the Son, all things were created through Him and for Him. That God created all things for Himself. For His glory. For the Son. Gerard Manley Hopkins in a poem called God's Grandeur said this, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is filled up. It overflows with the glories of God. Thinking of God's power in Romans 1.20, Paul said this, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's power is on display in the world. We know that it took a mighty, powerful God to create the heavens and the earth that we see and that we live in. 
God's power is demonstrated. Uh, listen to this from Psalm 33. If we think of power, we might think of, um, I don't know, volcanoes or jet propulsion or human uh, muscular strength, things along that line. Psalm 33.6, speaking about God and the creation, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of His mouth all their host. God didn't flex His muscles to create the universe. It says, by the word of His mouth and the word, the breath of His mouth and the word of the Lord. Do you remember a week ago we talked from Psalms that God pointed out that the idols they couldn't see or hear, they were fashioned like humans, and you couldn't even get a sound out of their throat. You couldn't get the merest breath. But Psalm says, by the breath of His mouth, God didn't work hard, He just breathed. And the universe came into existence. He spoke, and it stood firm. There's a great passage in Job 38 when Job's been having it on God and and God's come down to clarify Job's thinkings about who's righteous and who's not and how things are and how they're not. And one of the things he says to Job, he says, Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Now this picture, these are the Pleiades. And these were up this morning, by the way, in the southern sky. And if you look at this in the sky, this constellation looks very small and very bright. It looks like a little dipper. Very tiny dipper. The Pleiades. The seven sisters. God says to Job, can you bind those stars together? Can you tie them up? Can you chain them together so they stay there in that constellation? And guys, for us, we know that constellation, small and bright as it appears to us, it spreads across eight light years across the sky. If you went up to try and chain those stars together, they're eight light years across. We couldn't get there. We couldn't do that. God says to Job, could you hold those together for me? Job says, no. Can you loose the cords of Orion? Orion was up in the southern sky this morning too. Can you loose the cords of Orion? Guys, that red star at the top, your top left, that's Betelgeuse. And Betelgeuse, the size of that one star is as big as our solar system out to Jupiter. One star in one constellation. That constellation is a thousand light years apart. In other words, we see it as a pattern in the sky, but the stars themselves are separated by a thousand light years of space and time. God is trying to give Job some sense of Job's place in the world and God's greatness. He says, can you lead forth the constellations in their season? Can you guide the bear, the Big Dipper, with its children? God says to Job, Job, when I want to take my dog for a walk, I put a leash on Orion and I walk him through my neighborhood. Like we put a leash on our dog Jordy and walk her through the neighborhood. And God says to Job, can you lead those stars like a dog? A puppy at your heels around the neighborhood of the almost immeasurable galaxies and universe? God says, that's who I am and this is who you are. The, the galaxies, the, the vastness of space, guys, part of that is just meant for us to get some sense of how big and how great God is. We can't get there, but God says He occupies all of it. And when Job is ready to have it on God and tell God how things are, God says to Job, let me, let me give you a sense of perspective. Here am I. Here are you. You not only have God's power demonstrated in creation, 
But you've also just got these great elements of goodness and creativity. In Genesis 1.31, when God sat back and looked at all He created, He said this, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. God looked at everything He created and said, this is absolutely what I meant it to be. This is good stuff. This isn't average work. This isn't just okay. This isn't C passing. This is good stuff. This is very good. Sometimes people have problems with one thing or another, addictions, etc., you name it. Stuff is not our problem. Sin is our problem. We are our problem. But the stuff God made is not a problem. It says this in 1 Timothy 4.4, Paul says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving and prayer. Everything God made is good. He's a good God. He put His goodness into the creation. Everything God made is good. There's a great uh, text in Acts 14 when Paul and Barnabas were going through Asia and he gets to the city of Lystra and he's trying to help them conceive of who the God is that he's telling them about. And, and Paul says, this is one of the ways the God I'm telling you about has given witness to Himself He says, He did not leave Himself without witness. He did you good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says to the Lystrans, part of God's witness to you has simply been the goodness that comes down to you every time it rains. And every cycle and season of life and the movement of the earth through the year and the amounts of sun and the seasons that we have. And you've got this thought of rejoicing through the cycles of life. Paul says that's God's witness to Himself through creation in His goodness to you. And that fall, I hope you guys enjoy fall as much as I do. It's a time of harvest. Most of the crops are already put up. But it's a time of celebration. It's cooler weather for us, but... Think back in the day when the farmers would bring in the crops. This was life as good as it got. Paul says that is part of God's testimony to you in creation of His goodness. So if you think about this, every ability you and I have to enjoy anything is based on God's creative goodness. His goodness on display in His creation. So if it's food, if it's friendship, if it's family, if it's sex, if it's sunrise, sunset, whatever it is, All the things we are wired to be able to enjoy, God has done that through His creative goodness. He's put on display in creation His power, His goodness, and His creativity. Uh, Close your eyes if you want. I'm going to read a poem. This is written by Angela Morgan uh, about a hundred years ago. And it's called God the Artist. But she was in her mind turning over what did it look like to contemplate God as the Creator. And this is how she saw it and thought of it. God, when you thought of a pine tree, how did you think of a star? How did you dream of the Milky Way to guide us from afar? How did you think of a clean brown pool where flecks of shadows are? God, when you thought of a cobweb, how did you think of dew? How did you know a spider's house had shingles bright and new? How did you know the human folk would love them like they do? God, when you patterned a bird song flung on a silver string, how did you know the ecstasy that crystal call would bring? 
How did you think of a bubbling throat and a darling speckled wing? God, when you chiseled a raindrop, how did you think of a stem bearing a lovely satin leaf to hold the tiny gem? How did you know a million drops would deck the morning's hem? Why did you mate the moonlit night with the honeysuckle vines? How did you know Madeira Bloom distilled ecstatic wines? How did you weave the velvet disc where tangled perfumes are? God, when you thought of a pine tree, how did you think of a star? Isn't that great? Just whatever you could substitute, whatever in your mind represents joy or pleasure or delight. God, when I look at something, I eat something, I see something, I hear something. God, how did you ever put all that stuff together and know that it would please us as delightfully as it does. Well, guys, as we wind down, let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. The first is this. Don't worship an empty box. That's simple. Don't worship something or someone less than God. If we have any understanding of who God is, His uniqueness, His incredible uniqueness, no one is or can be like Him. No one is or can be eternal. No one else is or can be omnipotent or omnipresent. Though we conform to God's image over time, especially in Christ's humanity, there are things about God that we will never be because God is God and we're not. For us to worship, to aim for anything less than the image of God is simply idolatry. It's useless. It's worshiping empty boxes. The second thing is this. As we grow, as we focus on God Himself, and as we grow into His likeness, part of that likeness, in some ways, individual for each of us, should include displaying His goodness in our creativity as well. And for many of us, we're dull, we're straight line, we're get-the-job-done kind of people. I'm in that category. Even for guys like me, God means for us to display His kind of creative goodness in the lives we lead. J.R.R. Tolkien is one of the best-known authors of the last hundred years, and popular surveys have repeatedly said Tolkien and his works, The Hobbits and The Fellowship of the Ring, are the best fictional literature of the last hundred years. He's had a profound impact, right? Tolkien believed in the God of the Bible. He was orthodox in his religion. And this is what he believed about God and humanity and God's image. He said, Humans were meant to be sub-creators like God. That part of what it meant to be created in the image of God was to be creative like God was creative. And by that he meant to marshal our creative God-given abilities into the arenas of life we live in and display God's glory in those. We can do that in things like the literature and arts, but you can do this in the way you decorate your home or the way you garden or the way you cook. We're talking about bringing the goodness of God and His creative genius into our life and sphere. Christians, and thinking of, of uh, all of us are not the same, we're all a little different. What does it look like for Mike to be creative, to display God's goodness and creativity? be a lot different than you, each one of us. Gifts, skill set, time, energies, abilities, it all looks a little different. But broadly, Christians should excel in the creative arts. We know who our Father is. We know what He's like. We should excel in that creative arts. Christians should be among those finding creative solutions to the challenges common to humanity. I think it was Letourneau, was a committed Christian man who found a way to make 
like earth movers, big machines that changed the way we shaped and built the world. That was a Christian man exercising creative goodness and he transformed the world because he brought that skill set to bear. Christians should be displaying God's goodness and creativity in the otherwise mundane areas of life like cooking or doing the dishes. So guys, what's our identity and who are we aspiring to be? Are we ugly ducklings? Or are we swans? Do we know that God, the Creator God of all the universe, is our God because Jesus is our Savior? If that's the case, we may be despised by the world, but we are going to be the beautiful swan. We are growing more and more fully into the image and the likeness of Jesus our Savior and God our Father as we make them the object of our worship. Father, we just thank You for Your innate full-fledged, overflowing goodness poured out on us through creation. And Lord, delightful as all that is by Your goodness, Lord, thanks that You became one of us in the Incarnation. Lord Jesus, that You walked the earth. You got Your feet and hands dirty. You took on our humanity. Lord, most awesome of all, You took on our sins on Yourself on the cross so that we could become children of God and bear Your image fully again in our restoration. Father God, would You help us today to see You more clearly, to love You more dearly, and to become like You in the doing. In Jesus' name, Amen.